Um, today's Bible readings from Acts chapter 4, verse 33 to chapter 5, verse 11. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means sense of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it, put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Anania, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, was it the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human, human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and a great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the man who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in and find her body, find her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is God's word. Thanks, Miranda. Well, it's pretty full on, isn't it? The end of that passage raises so many questions. Clearly, what Ananias and Sapphira did wasn't good, but was it really that bad? The first part of the reading was way more positive, but it also raises questions. It paints this idyllic picture of the early church sharing their possessions. And so I wonder, are we also meant to be like that? 
It's interesting that in this reading, we hear about the church in its infancy, and it's a really mixed report, isn't it? Even in just 17 verses, there are some high highs and some low lows. And maybe that resonates with your personal experience of church, or maybe your experience has been more kind of monochrome than that. This contradictory mix, I think, really resonates with what we hear about the church on a broader scale, maybe on social media or in other ways. If you set out to search, you can find amazing stories of churches living and loving sacrificially and generously, better maybe than you can imagine. And you can also find devastating stories of churches behaving in ways that sometimes seem worse than our secular world, worse than you can imagine. And those kind of stories are often easier to find than the more positive ones. So in some ways it seems that the church today displays still a similar pattern of high highs and low lows. And so if that's the case, what can we learn from what we've just heard from Acts for us today? So far as we've been hearing from the book of Acts, there have been some really high highs, haven't there been? We've heard about the coming of the Holy Spirit really dramatically and powerfully at Pentecost. We've heard the apostles powerfully proclaiming the message about Jesus. We've heard about 3,000 people becoming Christians after hearing Peter's first sermon. We've heard about Peter healing a lame man. These are amazing highs for these early believers. Last week, we hit the first low for the early church, the first dark cloud on the horizon. The priests, the rulers, the teachers of the law, the Sadducees, all of these Jewish leaders weren't happy. They threw Peter and John into jail because of their teaching about Jesus and because Peter had healed a lame man. They eventually let them out, but they threatened them. They told them not to keep teaching about Jesus. In response, Peter and John went back and joined the other believers and together they prayed. This is where we finished last week. It was an amazing prayer that they prayed and I want to just remind us of the last little part of that prayer. This is verse 29 of Acts chapter 4. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your words with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This is a prayer that God answered in verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. This is a prayer that God keeps answering. And we see that in verse 33 that we've just read. The the apostles refused to be silent about Jesus and we hear with great power, they continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This is the briefest of all summaries of the message of the Christian faith. It's the heart of the message of the Christian faith, a message about the man Jesus named Jesus because as we read in Matthew's gospel, he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means the Lord saves. It's a message about the resurrection of Jesus. He was raised from the the dead by God on the third day after his crucifixion. It's a message about Jesus who is the Lord. 
So I wonder what your response has been so far in your life to this message about Jesus, to this message that salvation is found in no one else but Jesus, as we heard last week. I'd really love to chat more if you have questions about that message. So grab me after the service or send me an email if you'd like to chat. Luke makes it really clear in the book of Acts that this this message caused massive disruption in the lives of the people who heard it. And I think it still does. Some of the people who heard this message in the book of Acts believed, uh, others didn't believe. For those who believed, this message changed them. Those who believed were transformed as the Holy Spirit filled them. John Stott is a Christian writer and he says this, Luke is concerned here to show that the fullness of the Spirit is seen in deed as well as in word, in service as well as in witness, in love for the family as well as in testimony to the world. This isn't just a message to which we give intellectual assent. As we believe, God sends his Spirit and shapes his people. We read something of that shaping here in an astounding claim about the early church. This is in verse 34, where we read, there were no needy persons among them. That's an incredible claim. It reminds me of a promise made by an Australian Prime Minister a long time ago, Bob Hawke, in his election speech in 1987. This is what he said. For our next term, we are setting achievable new goals for Australia's future in the world. And at the head of those goals is the future of all our children. So we set ourselves this first goal. By 1990, no Australian child will be living in poverty. I don't think any of us would disagree with that goal, would we? As far as it being achievable, I know that the Hawke government certainly didn't achieve that. And no government since then has achieved it. And humanly speaking, I'm not surprised about that. So was Luke's claim true that there were no needy persons among this church? We can assess that as we read the book of Luke and decide what we think about it as a historical document. We can also look for other evidence about this claim. Luke's description is echoed by Teresa Morgan, who's a professor of Greco-Roman history at the University of Oxford. This is what she says about the early church. This is a world with no social safety nets, but Christians create social safety nets. They are the people who are notorious for looking after the widows, the poor, the orphans, the people who in most of society are just slung out onto the streets. That is an amazing picture of the impact of the early Christian church. So what was going on? How did this happen? We see a little bit of this in verses 33 and 34. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. God worked powerfully in this early church. He worked powerfully through the apostles' preaching. And he worked powerfully so that the generosity of his actions towards us in Christ, his grace, was echoed in the generosity that marked the Christian community. 
You see, in Christ's death and resurrection, we read in Colossians 2 that God forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. This free gift from God of our debt to him cancelled is what shaped and transformed the early church. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. You may have heard of the idea of paying it forward. When someone does something kind to you, you pass that kindness on to others. Maybe you've experienced this, this in a coffee queue somewhere. Sometimes I've heard stories of people ordering a coffee and being ready to pay only to have the barista say to them, no worries, the person in front of you has already paid for your coffee. And then the pay it forward idea is someone who's that experience, has had that experience then wants to pay for someone else behind them or maybe a couple of people behind them. What's happening here in Acts is a little bit like that. The lives of these early Christians have been turned upside down and inside out by the resurrection of Jesus and by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They have experienced God's generosity to them in the forgiveness of their sins, in his offer of new life. And their response is to pay that generosity forward to other believers as God's grace and his spirit changes their lives, changes their hearts. I want to dig in a little bit here to explore the attitudes that we see in this early Christian community. It's really interesting they're described at the end of Acts chapter 2 as well as here in Acts chapter 4. And I think we see three common things in both of those descriptions, three characteristics. Firstly, we see that this early church has a radical attitude towards their possessions. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 44, we read this, all the believers were together and had everything in common. And it's echoed in Acts chapter 4, which we just heard. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Both of those verses contain that little phrase, have everything in common. Now, I don't think that means they'd set up some kind of legal common system, system of ownership. Uh, Peter says to Ananias in chapter 5, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? So they still owned their own stuff. This isn't about legalities, it's about their attitude. Although legally each person continued to own their own goods, John Stott says this, in heart and mind they cultivated an attitude so radical that they thought of their possessions as being available to help their needy brothers and sisters. My suspicion is that we sometimes struggle to share our possessions with our blood brothers and sisters, let alone with our brothers and sisters in Christ. The truth is, God's grace towards us is his gift of salvation. But God's grace to us is also so much more than that. Everything in our lives is ours because God has given it to us. By the grace of God, it is ours, which means that everything we have is really a gift from God given to us as a gift, a gift that God calls us to share with other people, with those in need. 
when I started work as a lawyer, I was given a file for a case that just kept on keeping on. It was an estate matter, a will that we were distributing. And it was a will that had been horribly contested by different members of this really large family. It was un unbelievably complicated and took me weeks and weeks to work through it. It was also just really horrible. It was horrible reading about all of the different claims that these family members had made about each other and about this fight that was happening over the money in the will. This isn't uncommon in estate matters. Everyone clamouring for as much as they can get. And even from when kids are little, you often hear them saying that word, it's mine. That's our attitude to the stuff we have. The early church was dramatically different. They had this radical attitude towards their possessions. And secondly, that radical attitude led to sacrificial action. In chapter 2, verse 45, we read that they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. In chapter 4, we, we read they shared everything they had. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. So in both cases, we see that the selling was sporadic and voluntary. This wasn't just a nice idea from the early church. They actually put this into action. They lived it. And thirdly, we see that the way they distributed this money these possessions was proportionate to need. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 45, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And again in Acts chapter 4, verse 35, it was distributed to anyone they had need. And the end result was that amazing consequence. There were no needy persons among them. So what do we do with this? With this picture of the church with a radical attitude to their possessions, which led to sacrificial action and to the elimination of needy persons. On the one hand, I think we could let ourselves off the hook, right? We could say, this was a really extreme response by the early church, or this was a unique moment in history which can't be replicated. Or we could take another approach. We could say, well, actually, what was happening here in the Jerusalem church lays down an, a model that we have to follow, a kind of model of primitive Christian communism where God uh, uh, wants Christians to have all their property in common. Although I don't think that's really what this picture paints. The, the selling and giving were voluntary, and I, so, so I think that undermines that approach pretty quickly. A better approach than either of these I think, is to look forward into the letters of the New Testament. What do we see in them? Do we see in any of them God calling us to this same kind of radical generosity, this same kind of radical sharing? Well, we certainly hear in Colossians 3 a clear call not to be greedy. There, Paul describes us as people who have died, whose lives are now hidden with Christ in God. We're people who've been raised with Christ. This is our spiritual identity. And as such people, we are urged by God to put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, including greed, which is idolatry. Getting rid of greed is the first step in opening up the way for the kind of sharing that we see in Acts 4. 
but do we see more than just the absence of greed in the New Testament letters? I think we do in several places, but let me just share with you one from 1 Timothy chapter 6, reading from verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And then in verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. That sounds a lot like the principles we saw in the church in Acts 4. So the question for us then is what does that look like for us now? What might this look like for you? What might this look like for us together here at St Jude's? What does this look like in Melbourne in 2023? N.T. Wright said this, what you do with money and possessions declares loudly what sort of a community you are. And the statement made by the early church's practice was clear and definite. For anyone who trusts in Jesus, it seems to me that generosity and sharing are not negotiable. So let's pray in the words of this passage that God's grace will be powerfully at work in all of us so that there might be no needy persons among us. And let's grapple with the hard questions about how this looks in practice, about how it impacts where I live, how I live, what I spend, what I save, where I go on holidays, what I give. Those are all the questions where the rubber hits the road. As we grapple with those questions, Luke grounds it very personally in the opposite examples of Barnabas on the one hand and Ananias and Sapphira on the other. Barnabas is a concrete example of what it looks like to be a true member of this new community. We read in verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. That's a beautiful example. But Ananias and Sapphira do something really different. At the beginning of chapter 5, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was Luke writing this account of the early church, I probably would have left this bit out. This isn't the best bit, right? But he leaves it in. He doesn't make it all shiny to make the church look better than it actually was. And the Bible is like that all the way through. It's a kind of warts and all account of God's people, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so I think that gives us confidence that what Luke is writing is historically true. He didn't try and cover this up, even right at the beginning of the life of the church. As Peter exposes Ananias and Sapphira, we see two things, I think. First of all, we see there's a spiritual battle taking place here. In verse 3, Ananias says, Peter, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied? This gives us a window into the already and not yet reign of the Lord Jesus for both the early church and for us. Already in Acts chapter 4, the church is unified 
but all sin has not yet been removed. That's one of the answers to why the church experiences these amazing highs and these really dark lows in the book of Acts. And now, already Jesus is king, reigning over all, even though not everyone acknowledges him as king. But we read in 1 Peter, Satan is still on the prowl like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And so all sin has not yet been removed. Already we see a great work of God in Acts in the lives of believers and the church. But still we see the dark stains of sin, both in Acts and in our lives, our personal lives and our corporate lives. We are still in this spiritual battle. It's a sobering reminder for us personally. As we trust in Christ, we do live with Jesus as our king, but we continue the battle with sin. It's a sobering reminder for us as a church. Secondly, at the heart of Ananias and Sapphira's sin is a lie, a lie to God. It's really clear there in verse 3. Peter says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And then a little bit further on, you have not lied just to human beings but to God and there incidentally is a little claim that the Holy Spirit actually is God this lie was to the Holy Spirit they've lied to God and then in verse 9 Peter says to Sapphira how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord Ananias and Sapphira were under no compulsion to sell their land they didn't have to do it They were also under no compulsion to give the whole of the sale price to the community. Presumably they could have said, hey, we've sold our land and here's half of the proceeds. But they lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied to God. And what they've done reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Ananias and Sapphira wanted to look good. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And even though they're not church leaders, they also remind me of Jesus calling out the hypocrisy of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, you hypocrites, Jesus says. Ananias and Sapphira claimed to be one thing when they were actually something very different. They were more interested in their reputation than in integrity. They... And we might sometimes be able to fool people. But there's no fooling God. It only takes a moment, doesn't it, to know that the idea of fooling God is completely ridiculous. But we're all tempted, aren't we? A little while ago, I was parking my car and I accidentally bumped the car behind me. The the Juco didn't touch, but we have a little tow bar and it bumped into the car behind. It wasn't obviously damaged, but if someone looked, they would sooner or later find it. There was no one who saw this happen. There was no one watching. I battled with myself for longer than I should have before I fessed up and wrote a note. To give you the full picture, Brian did something similar to this, my husband, the week before. He scraped a car when he was parking. And he also had a bit of a battle before he wrote a note and left it on their windscreen. His damage cost $200, mine cost $1,000. We blew our no-claim bonus. And we don't usually run around bumping into other cars. (laughs) 
for both of us. No one saw what we did. There was no one to hide this from. No one would have known if we hadn't left a note. Just God. We can't fool God. And the resounding message of Acts so far has been that we don't have to. God offers us forgiveness when we bring our sin to him, when we repent. He offers us forgiveness so our sins might be wiped out. That is the message of the gospel. We can't fool God and we don't need to. So if there are ways that you're trying to fool God at the moment, think again. In the words of Acts 3, repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. But that leaves us with the question of why for Ananias and Sapphira there was this immediate and devastating judgment from God. I think it's about holiness and the true church. This account is sandwiched between two accounts set in the temple. And I think in doing this, Luke is portraying the church as the new temple, the place where a holy God meets with his people where sacrifice has cleansed the people so they can meet with God. For the church, for each of us, that cleansing comes through the death of Jesus and it's experienced through repentance. Holiness is at the heart of who we are called to be as God's people. So I think that explains why God reacts, but perhaps not how strongly he reacts. And I think the explanation for that lies in when this takes place. Because when we read the Bible, we see God is often portrayed as long-suffering, as patient, as slow to anger, as abounding in love. This immediate and dramatic response by God to an individual is incredibly rare in the Bible. I think such an incident only happens one other time. That was just after the Israelites went into the Promised Land. They took the city of Jericho and one of the men, Achan, kept back some of the devoted things from the plunder. It's the same phrase used here of Ananias and Sapphira. And the Lord said to Joshua, whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Both the Achan incident and the Ananias and Sapphira incidents take place at the beginning of God establishing his people. In Joshua, he's just bringing Israel into the promised land, establishing them as his covenant community. Here in Acts, this is the very beginning of the church, God's new covenant community. When something is new and young, its present shape defines its future shape. When you start knitting a jumper, if you cast on the stitches wrong, there's no way the jumper is going to turn out right. You have to pull it all off and start again. When a new tree is planted, it's often held up with a stake to make sure it grows straight. When we have a young aspiring professional athlete, we work really hard on technique to channel that raw talent towards victory. What we learn here about God when the church is in its infancy is that he will establish his church and it will be the true church, not some parody or some corrupt caricature. The triune God will grant the community growth and he will maintain the purity of this church. God still calls us to purity. He calls his church to be pure, 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4. God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. This is a sobering reality, but it's also a freeing one. We know in our heart of hearts the truth of who we are. We know the beauty of purity, of goodness, of truth. We know our inability to always be people like that. We know that there is no fooling God. And we know the goodness of our God who calls us to himself to be a holy people through the Lord Jesus, through the power of his spirit, through Jesus who offers us forgiveness over and over again. This is a call to be a people who repent daily, who turn to God so that our sins may be wiped out. And it's a call to us to reflect on our generosity. The key to being generous is to savour God's generosity towards us in Jesus. We have every reason to pay that generosity forward. So please join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are an incredibly generous God, that in the face of us ignoring you, in the face of us turning away from you, you reach out to us and offer us forgiveness in Jesus. God, help us to savour the depths of your generosity towards us and help us to live as people who are generous towards one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.